Today, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. Yesterday on the show, we talked at length about the FDA's latest emergency authorization approval of yet another COVID-19 vaccine, the Johnson & Johnson single-dose shot that's being distributed here in Michigan and all over the country. It's an important development in the overall goal of reaching herd immunity. But now that there are three vaccines on the market for adults, it might be time to start thinking about the future of vaccine efforts as it relates to our children. As many kids return to classrooms here in Michigan, what's the future going to look like as far as classroom COVID protocols? And how could vaccinating young people in the months ahead help protect teachers and other people who work in schools this fall. Here to talk with us is somebody who's really closely involved with not just the approval of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, but also vaccine development aimed at children. Veronica McNally is Assistant Dean for Experiential Education at Michigan State University College of Law. She also serves on the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Committee that recently voted to approve the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine for human use. She's also the only member of the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices who's from Michigan. She joins us now to talk about vaccines and our children. Veronica McNally, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So uh, you were closely involved with the approval process of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Briefly start out by describing what that process looks like in terms of the internal infrastructure that goes into that kind of decision making. Sure. So it's a federal advisory committee to the CDC and just kind of going back to the the origins of, of this type of committee. Uh, it is it was originally um, part of an act, the Federal Advisory Committee Act, that is designed to to give advice to federal agencies. So there's twenty one agencies or twenty one advisory committees at the CDC. The ACIP as you described is one of them. The purpose of the ACIP is to provide guidance to the director of the CDC uh, and the the office of the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services on the most effective way to prevent vaccine preventable diseases in the U.S. So as we discussed on the show yesterday, there's some concerns that the easier storage and single dose nature of this vaccine makes it easier to distribute to, to hard to reach communities. But it's also not quite as effective as the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine, which causes some people to worry that this could create the perception of a two-tiered vaccine system. Uh, Can you talk about why it matters to consider the racial, historical, and geographical aspects of these kind of vaccine rollouts in our country? Sure. So let me start by saying that the the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is very effective, and it's effective at protecting what is most important, and that's hospitalization and death. So when we're talking about effectiveness, we're talking about reducing risk. It's 93% effective at reducing that risk of hospitalization and death. 
we can't compare this directly to the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine. And we cannot do that because this phase three clinical trial was done at a different time in different geographical regions. So we're not looking apples to apples here. And when we're when we're looking at sort of what this vaccine offers us, as you noted, it, it gives us that much needed flexibility in vaccination efforts. So you can get it to clinics that are that are pop up clinics, if you will. You can get it to places that are newly, uh, newly established administration sites for vaccines. You can get it to provider offices that don't have the freezer that you need to store the other vaccines. So you want to get it to people who need to be fully vaccinated quickly, people who can't return for a second dose, people who might be um, homebound or who might be mobile. And when we're talking about trust in the vaccines, we got to look at three things. We've got to look at trust in the product, trust in the provider, and trust in the policymaker. So the product, the product is effective. The providers want to give this to you and they have credible information and you should trust that credible information. And the policymakers are trying to right a wrong. There definitely have been some historical issues of mistreatment and and systematic neglect. And, And I think that it is very clear that both state and federal leaders are trying to correct that. So I also want to get a sense from you about the pressure that you and the other folks who are involved in making these decisions might be feeling right now about getting more products approved and getting more availability of those products to the American people. I think that's one of the things also that gives some people just a little pause when they're thinking about the vaccinations, how quickly this has all happened, and whether the the, the pressures of the the urgency of of, of COVID nineteen and and how bad uh, it is and how much it has taken from us is is pushing things faster than maybe they ought to go. Can you can you talk about the speed with which all of this is happening and and give our listeners some some reassurance about the process being being what it should be? No question. There is an absolute uh, pressure to get this right. And when we look at this virus, it's tragic. We have 28 million cases in the U.S. We have 500,000 deaths. It has impacted Michigan. It has done so uh, across the country with disproportionate impact in the minority populations. So, yeah, we want to get this right. And we, and we know that that vaccines are the way to end this pandemic. So let's just start with this basic premise in in public health. Vaccines are one of the greatest medical and public health achievements in the in in the world ever ever having been developed in public health. So if we know that and we know that we've got some of the greatest scientists in the world working on these vaccines, we we can take a lot of Uh, We can place a lot of hope in the fact that by the end of March right now, the CDC is saying that we're going to have 240 million doses of vaccine. So people who've been waiting patiently, people who want to put their arm out are going to be able to do so. And you asked about about the pressure to get this right, or you asked about the pressure that we feel. And when we think about the safety of the vaccine and we think about the efficacy of the vaccine, we have to look at what systems are in place to monitor this. There has never been a better way to monitor the safety of vaccines in the United States. And, and it's, uh, it's a multi-tiered approach. There is a new system that they put in place with this 
uh, vaccine. It's called V-Safe. So it is, it is something that anyone who gets a vaccine today can participate in. And it tells, uh, it tells the CDC about your symptoms that you experience. So there's many more um, systems in place, and I'd be happy to talk about those further if you think your listeners are interested. Yeah, yeah. So I I do want to talk about children and the idea of, of course, vaccinating our kids, which is something that's going to happen at, uh, at some point. But first talk about where researchers are in the approval process of a vaccine and vaccine protocols for our kids. So they're, they're not in the approval process yet. These vaccines that are coming for our kids are in clinical development. And there's a number of different manufacturers, some for which we've already seen emergency use authorization uh, approved in the adult population. So those, you know, the Pfizer one, the Moderna one, the, the J&J, Janssen one, those all are, are working on clinical trials for the younger children. And some of these vaccines uh, are, are fully enrolled for the, the, the adolescent population. So I think you probably heard Dr. Fauci talk about the fact that the goal is by fall to get kids six and up vaccinated, and that's going to make our classrooms safer. So where I'm coming from as a public health advocate and with an interest in, in vaccine specifically is because I lost a child to a vaccine-preventable disease, in fact, mm. a respiratory disease. Mm. So for me, it's a tragedy for a parent to say, I-, I didn't know the risk. And the risk right now is that COVID does impact kids. We didn't think at first that it was serious, and we now know that it is. So it can be. I want to say that it can be. It, mm-hmm. it might be rare to have an as serious outcome, but it can happen, and parents should know that. Mm. So, so do you think we will get to the place where we're uh, distributing vaccines for children in time for the fall opening of uh, reopening of schools? Of course, here in Michigan, we're really pushing to reopen schools now. And and there are a lot of school districts that this week and in the coming weeks are going to welcome a lot more kids through their doors again than they have been. Uh, but, but I think everybody's got their eye on September when the new school year starts and what that will look like and, and hoping that it will be f- much closer to normal. I think that does depend, or it should depend, in some ways, on on this vaccine for kids, who of course set aside what what effects the, the 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 virus has on them, they can of course spread it to adults who are who are maybe more vulnerable. Well, I do think that it is possible. It's going to depend on what the safety and efficacy looks like uh, as we go through these these approval processes. So it will go through, a vaccine for kids will go through the same regulatory process that every vaccine goes through. So it'll be, it'll be evaluated at the, at the clinical trial phase. It would then have to go to the FDA for approval. Then it would come to the ACIP for recommendation for use in, in, in the U.S. population for, for children and adolescents. So we're not going to see that that happen. It will not be recommended until it goes through those formal processes. So that's a positive. And I do want to say that you're right, that it's going to make the, it's going to impact potentially transmission. But by then, hopefully we'll have a heck of a lot of adults vaccinated 
that's going to stop the transmission. If it tr- if it turns out that these vaccines are as effective as we hope they will be in stopping transmission, that will be in place too, and that's really big. And we can't under we can't overlook that. We can't we can't underestimate the the value of that. But you raise another important issue, and that is vaccines in school age children. Mm. Our rates, as you're probably aware, because of the the way that that coronavirus has impacted us over the last year, our rates for vaccine-preventable disease vaccines in children has decreased. We are about 15% less um, in terms or lower in our numbers than we were at this time last year. That is scary. I'm talking with Veronica McNally, an assistant dean for experiential education at Michigan State University College of Law. She also serves on the CDC Prevention Committee uh, that recently voted to approve the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine for human use here in the United States. Uh, We're talking about the eventuality, really, of vaccinating our children against COVID-19. We're talking about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in particular uh, and how safe it is and how it changes the picture, really, of vaccination uh, because it's a little different from the other two. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and talk to us about vaccines for kids. Once there is a COVID-19 vaccine that's approved for children, will you get your children vaccinated? Uh, Do you have any concerns or fears about getting your kids vaccinated to protect them and the adults they spend time with from COVID-19? Do you have a child or know a young person who has gotten sick with the coronavirus, for instance? And what was that experience like? How does that influence your uh, decision about uh, about these vaccines. Also, give us a call and tell us how you're reacting to the news of the approval of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, a single-dose vaccine that also does not require uh, the kind of uh, extreme storage that uh, the other two do, which means it probably could reach many more places uh, that, that are hard to reach uh, with public health initiatives. As always, uh, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Of course, we also want to hear from you if you're somebody who is really hesitant about all of these vaccines. If you are taking a pass on all of this, at least for now, waiting to see if, uh, if, if it really is indeed as safe as they say it is, if you're waiting f- just a little longer to get a little more data about what, what the effects are here, uh, we'd love to hear from you as well. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number uh, on the phones. Um, I, I want to go back to the kind of complicated public perceptions of vaccines uh, and, and talk just a little about an, an exchange I had with someone I know recently who cast doubt on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and trust in that company because of the lawsuit over talcum, part, uh, over talcum powder, which uh, there was recently uh, a pretty big settlement uh, by Johnson & Johnson. I, I raised that as an example of the ways in which all of these things are really interconnected in in people's minds. And I think it's a a reasonable question. 
why should you trust Johnson & Johnson with a vaccine if you couldn't trust them with something as, as seemingly benign as talcum powder? Sure. So that goes right to the trust in the product. And we have to look at the process by which this product has been approved for emergency use. And I, I want to say that you have uh, about 45,000 participants in that phase three clinical trial. You had that data evaluate, evaluated by, uh, by impartial people who are looking at this to say, is this really safe? Is this really as effective as we, as we see that it is? And then the most important thing that you can have confidence in moving forward is the ongoing monitoring to make sure that this product's benefits outweigh any risk. And that's sort of that multi-tiered approach that I was telling you that we have to vaccine safety monitoring in the U.S. Mm. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Mark in Redford Township. Mark, welcome to the conversation. Stephen, good morning. Hi. And and to your guests also. Mm -hmm. Listen, I have... um, the antibodies I was tested recently for that. I had COVID back in March of the last year, and I still had the antibodies. I wonder if I should just go on ahead and had the vaccine or wait it out. Um, my reluctance is, um, and I'm not, I'm not so sure yet also about um, the effectiveness of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark, I'm glad you called and, uh, and asked that question. Uh, Veronica McNally, What's the answer for Mark? Hi, Mark. Yes, you absolutely should get the vaccine. And the reason I tell you that is because the antibody that you have, we don't know what level of antibody is protective against this virus. So, and there's also some additional consideration. So we know that there's some variants. You probably heard about um, about this in the news. We don't know the, the impact of the variants on the virus yet either. So it's definitely a great idea for you to talk to your provider, but I would recommend that that if your provider says okay, that you go ahead and get the vaccine. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Mark, I really, really love that you called and asked that really specific question. I think uh, getting that kind of information to our listeners is really, really important right now. Uh, Let's go to Keisha in Ann Arbor. Keisha, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. Hi. I'm calling to um, express my concern with... um, the lack of vaccine availability for high-risk persons with high-risk um, or that are in the high-risk category. I'm a type 1 diabetic. I have three school-age children, and I cannot find anywhere to get a vaccine. I've tried my um, health care facility at uh, University of Michigan. I've called health departments, and I always get a different answer. And so I'm concerned about the back-to-school standpoint of um, high-risk individuals are not uh, able to get a vaccine, but you want our children to go back to school that puts the children at risk, but also um, us at risk at home. So that's a, a huge concern and a bit frustrating. Hmm. Uh, I, I'm really glad you called as well, Keisha. I think there's a lot of questions about prioritization and who's in line where with regard to these uh, vaccines. Veronica McNally, can you help her understand that better? I, I, I'm happy to talk to you, Keisha, and thank you so much for expressing this concern. I think it's just a matter of, of time here. 
over the next few weeks before you we, you will be able to get vaccinated. And you've raised an important point about where to get the vaccine. So if you go to the, the michigan.gov website and you click on the COVID vaccine, there is some information about multiple locations where you can sign up and you should sign up to get the vaccine. And as soon as you're eligible, you'll be notified. So this means that you can go to multiple locations of pharmacies to get on uh, their registry. You can go on the health department to get on the registry. So I know that it can be frustrating, but it will be really important for you to have that information at the point in time that you can get vaccinated. Mm. Okay, again, Keisha, really appreciate that uh, you're listening and uh, and calling to get that kind of crucial information. Let's go to Brad in Royal Oak. Brad, welcome to the show. Hello. Hey. Uh, I am around 21, and most of the people I know and am friends with and I've talked to about this are either suspicious of the vaccine or outright don't want to get it. And, you know, it's hard... While I personally would like to get it and I'm not super suspicious about it, it's hard for me to talk to people out of this um, when most of people my age's relationship with the pharmaceutical industry is based in the opioid epidemic. And same thing with um, the healthcare industry in general, as far as like overprescribing and doctors and things like that. So hmm. I think that that is a major issue for why people are having tr- trouble trusting these companies that have, you know, it's been proven that they've exploited our generation and previous generations yeah. lives. <laughs> uh, Brad, uh, Brad, again, I'm really glad that uh, that you called and and asked that question. And I think there there's an awful lot of people who would reflect that same hesitancy that that that, that you are, and for the same reasons, looking at the context for this. Uh, Veronica, Veronica McNally, what's your what's your answer for Brad? Hi, thanks for the question, Brad. I think that for your age group, it's important that people get answers to their specific questions. So again, going back to the product, is there a question you have about the product and can we answer that question with credible information? So a lot of people want to know uh, about a little bit more information about the safety. And there, there is real-time data. It's not just information that came from the clinical trials, but now we've got this product uh, at least two of these vaccines in the arms of millions of Americans. So it's been it's already been given to 72 plus million people. So I, I think that it's good to ask questions. I created a campaign and that was able to partner with the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services to get people answers to their questions. That's ivaccinate.org. So I I encourage you when you're having those conversations to tell people to get credible information. Hmm. Okay, Veronica McNally, it was really great to have you here to help explain these really complicated uh, public health matters uh, to our audience. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you for having me, Stephen. We're going to take a quick break. and When we come back, we're going to take a critical look at the case for canceling student loan debt. Almost nobody argues that we've got to do something, but what's the right approach and what's the way to account for all of the inequalities that exist in our society that are playing out in the student loan context? We'll talk with someone next who has a really different take on that question. 
Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Thank you.